Thank you for joining us today for this life-changing message from River of Life. If you are ever in our area, we would love for you to join us. For more information, visit us at rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under ROL Crawfordville. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. All right, so tonight we are, as most of you know, last week we finished up our study in the book of Romans. And uh, we are going to take, before starting another book of the Bible, uh, we're going to take a short break. It's probably going to take us about, I guess, six or eight weeks. I'm not sure. We'll just kind of play it by ear. And we're going to cover uh, what I'm calling relevant cultural topics. Now, what do I mean by relevant cultural topics? Well, for the most part, I'm talking about the topics that seem to be dividing our country, uh, specifically abortion, uh, race, gender, and uh, sexuality. So we're going to be covering all of those and seeing what the Bible uh, says about them. But you'll notice at the top of that list is a different topic. And, we got, and this is where we have to start. So tonight, we're going to start out with the topic of truth. Because to be quite honest, we can't even go into those others unless we first understand this one. Now, why am I starting with truth? Well, if you go home tonight and you, and you go look at the nightly news or you get on the internet and look at YouTube or you, uh, uh, you get on social media, let's be honest, everybody's out there yakking, ain't they? Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's got something to say. Everybody says this is right or this is right. And unfortunately for us as Christians, many times there are people labeled Christians on opposite sides of the issue. So you'll go out and there'll be people that say they're Christian and they're against abortion. And then somebody else will interview somebody that says they're a Christian and they're for abortion. In fact, Planned Parenthood actually has a group of clergy, whether you know this or not, that um, advises them. So you can find Christians on both sides, or, or at least people who claim to be Christians, on both sides of these issues. And so it makes it hard for us sometimes when we're listening to, to really know how to think or, or to know what to believe. So let me just state this right out of the gate. For the most part, you need to ignore all of those voices. And, and in fact, you really shouldn't care what they all say. In fact, you really shouldn't care even what I say. What you should care about is that. What is the truth? When we're talking about abortion and we're talking about gender or race or sexuality, what's the truth? That's what we should all want to know. The irony of it is, though, that's the topic that we should all be talking about, but that's the topic that nobody's talking about. You, they'll talk about abortion. They'll talk about gender and race and sexuality, but nobody just wants to talk about truth as if it doesn't even need to be discussing. Now, let me say this. That shouldn't surprise us because it's always been that way. In John chapter 18, Jesus has been delivered over to the Romans to be crucified. And he's brought before uh, Pontius Pilate, who's the go Roman governor of Judea. And they have a very short conversation. And in that conversation, Pilate says to Jesus, so you're a king. And Jesus says to him, you say that I'm a king, but for this purpose I was born. For this purpose I came into the world. And this is what he said, for this purpose I came and that is to bear witness to the truth. Now, that is an amazing statement. Jesus said, the very reason I came is to tell you what's true. The very reason I was born into this world is to reveal the truth, to testify to the truth, to let you know what is true. And he goes on to say, and everyone who is of the truth, everyone who really wants to know the truth will listen to my voice. Now, now Pilate at this point, has an opportunity that very few people have had. And that, that he has the truth standing right in front of him. And what he should have said was, well, tell me the truth. Tell me what's true. And maybe Jesus would have said, well, Pilate, I'm the truth. But Pilate didn't do that, did he? And, and instead, Pilate said this, what's truth? In other words, what he's saying there is, who can really know what's true? 
One person says this and another person says that. How can you really know what truth is? By the way, guys, right there in that conversation 2,000 years ago is the exact same issue that we still face today. Because we, but it was true then and it's true today. We live in a world where people want to deny that truth can even be known. They want to suppress the truth because they want to do what they want to do. They don't really want to know the truth. That is still the problem that we have today. But tonight, we're going to try and answer Pilate's question. What is truth? Now, several years ago, I ran across a definition of truth. And there's a lot of different definitions. You can go back home tonight and Google truth and find different definitions. But I ran across one. And the moment that I ran across it, I thought, that's it. That is the, the best definition of truth I've ever heard. It, was, it got right to the heart of the matter. It was intuitive. It was clear. It was easy to understand. And I have held on to that definition ever since. This is our definition of truth. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Truth is that which describes reality. Let me give you an example. I've got a, I brought a book with me tonight. This is The Complete Works of Josephus, and I brought it for a reason. Josephus was born in 37 A.D. He died in 100 A.D. He was a Jew. He was a historian. Um, and he, he wrote, this is actually two books, by the way. And I brought this book tonight for a reason. But I'm going to stand here with this book. And let's say that four people made a statement. Let's say that Ashley says, if you, uh, you're going to let go of that book, and it's going to fall to the floor. And then let's say uh, Scooter says, well, you're going, to, you're going to let go of that book, and it's going to rise to the ceiling. And then somebody else, who is it? Let's say Pris Priscilla says, you're going to let go of that book, and it's just, going to, it's just going to levitate. And then finally somebody else says, let's say my dad says, no, you're not even going to let go of that book. Four statements. All right, so let's let go of it. Which one is true? The one that corresponded to what really happened. The one that described the way things really are. Ashley's statement ends up being true. All the other statements end up being false. Ashley's statement is right. All the other statements are wrong. Truth is that which corresponds or describes what reality really is. In other words, truth simply describes the way things really are and any other viewpoint is wrong. Now listen, everything we talk about tonight, we're going to use when we talk about abortion. We're going to use when we talk about gender and race and sexuality. So tonight and next week are going to be really important because these things are going to keep coming up over and over. And this is an excellent, excellent definition of what truth is. Now, there are a lot of people out here that don't agree, or a lot of people in the world that don't agree with that definition of truth. There are other views of truth out there. Now, I'm not going to try to cover all of them tonight. I want to cover the two that are most prevalent in our culture and in our country, okay? The first one is something called relativism. Now, by the way, you may have never heard of this, but the majority of, of Americans think the way that I'm about to describe to you. Now, what is, what is relativism? Well, we all understand the concept of something being relative. Let's say, for example, I said to you that Tallahassee is close to Orlando. Is that true or is that false? It's all relative, right? I mean, obviously, Tallahassee is, is closer to Orlando than it is to Mars. But it's not as close as Jacksonville or, or Mariana or, or Sopchoppy. It, it's all relative because when you use the word close, that's, a, uh, that's a, uh, a subjective term. Let's say, for example, I said he hit the ball a long way. Is that true or false? Well, am I talking about a 10-year-old little leaguer who hit the ball 200 feet or am I talking about a 30-year-old major leaguer who hits it 500 feet? It's all relative. We get that, right? We understand that some things are relative, but a relativist says this, all truth is relative. Everything is relative. By the way, the vast majority of Americans 
This is exactly how they think. There was a, a, a survey done in 2002. By the way, that was 20 years ago. The Barna Group did a survey, and they surveyed a group of adults, and they surveyed a group of teenagers. About it, and there was a couple thousand people in each group, so this was a big survey. And this is what they said. They asked the one question, do you believe there are moral absolutes that are unchanging, or do you believe that moral truth is relative to your circumstances? Everybody with me? Do you believe that there's just moral truth that is unchanging, or do you believe that moral truth is relative to your circumstances? The adults, by a three-to-one margin, 64% to 22%, said truth is always relevant. I'm sorry, relative. Teenagers, it was a 14-to-one margin. 83% of teenagers said moral truth always depends on your circumstances. Only 6% says there is such a thing as absolute moral truth. See, basically, Americans today are just living by their feelings. They just go by how they feel. What If they feel right about it, then it must be true. If they feel wrong about it, then it must not be true. They're just literally living by how they're feeling. Now, by the way, those teenagers are now in their 30s. They're the teachers and educators and the ones that are writing curriculums for our schools. And they've taken it. See, they've lived their whole life with this idea that truth is just relative. And now they're, they're teachers and educators, and, and they, I read something the other day. L- let me give you an example. A true relativist or, or somebody that thinks truth is relative, they, they even things that are, we would just accept as fact, like 2 plus 2 equals 4, or circles are always round, or the uh, angles of a triangle equal 180 degrees. They, we would say those are just facts. And guess what they would say? No, hold on a minute. It might be true to you, but it's really relative. Your teacher might think the answer to 2 plus 2 is 4, but you might think it's 6. Now, even as I say that, don't you think that's the dumbest thing you've ever heard? Right? Isn't that absolutely ridiculous? There's a new curriculum right now called a Pathway to Equitable Math Instruction. It's being used in California, Oregon, Washington, and Virginia. You can go home, you can Google it, you can pull up the PDF and read it, and this is what it says. The concept of mathematics being purely objective is unequivocally false. What they're saying is this idea that there's only one right answer is false. They're, They're going to be teaching kids that what's important is you just, if you do the work and you come up with the wrong answer, do you feel good about it? Do you feel good about it? Well, we're going to give you an A. It doesn't matter if you're completely wrong. Folks, listen, it's going crazy, right? But we're raising a generation. We've already raised a generation of people that just live by their feelings. And And whatever feels good. So if getting the wrong answer feels good, it must be true. And you think it's crazy, but it's right there in black and white. And it's being used and starting to be used in places... Across this country, that's the first thing, or this, this worldview of truth that's diametrically opposed to absolute truth. Here's the second one. It's called pluralism. Now, pluralism, the word plural, of course, means more than one. So you, you probably know where this is going. You see this in statements like this. Somebody may say to you, well, that may be true for you, but it's not for me. That, that Jesus... Guy, he may be true for you, but, but Buddha is, is going to be true for me. Or they say things like this. Have y'all heard this statement? Just live your truth. You, you may have been born a boy and you feel like you're a girl and all them people may be telling you you're crazy and all that stuff. Don't, don't listen to them. You live your truth. This is called pluralism and pluralism This is what they believe. All truth is equally valid. If you're reading the Koran, that's just as valid as the Bible. If if your view of something is just as equally valid as as somebody else's view. Now, by the way, this is not only ridiculous, it's absolutely impossible. 2 plus 2 cannot equal 4 and 171 at the same time. 
A woman cannot be pregnant and not pregnant at the same time. The light cannot be red and not red at the same time. Truth, it, that's ridiculous, this idea that all truth is equally valid. But these are the two views that are absolutely rampant in our culture, in our society today. Now, the question is why? Why are so many people opposed to this idea of absolute truth? Well, this is what they would tell you. They would say things like this, for you to claim that you have absolute truth is narrow-minded. By the way, folks, truth is narrow-minded. Two plus two equals four. Is a math teacher narrow-minded to say that that's the only right answer? Of course not, right? I mean, two plus two, there is only one right answer. Truth, by definition, by nature, is very narrow. They may say to you that, well, to claim that you're right and somebody else is wrong, that's just arrogant. Is it arrogant for a locksmith to claim that there's only one key that's going to fit that lock? If it's true, it's true. It's not arrogant to say that it's true. Or they may say this to you, to claim that you have absolute truth excludes people. Well, once again, by nature, truth is exclusive. If 2 plus 2 equals 4, that excludes 99.99999% of every other answer. Truth, it, it, it's exclusive. It, it, it excludes other things. This is the one I want to touch on tonight because this is where the rubber is going to hit the road right here. Somebody will say to you, well, for you to claim that you have the truth is offensive and divisive. And this is what they'll say to you. All that matters is that you're sincere. That's what they'll say, right? What really matters is that if you just really believe that Allah is God, if, you just, if you're sincere, that's what really matters. If you just really believe that you're a woman, even though you were born a male, if you really believe that, that's what matters. Or if you just believe, that's a, if you sincerely believe that's just a clump of cells, you can get rid of it. What matters is sincerity. Folks, listen to me very closely. Truth could care less what you believe. It could care less how sincere you are. Vody Balkum tells a story. He was at a, a church and he was preaching. And somehow, and I don't know how the situation was, he stood up from the chair and the, the pulpit must have been very close to this chair where he was. So he said he stood up from the chair and... He starts preaching. He preaches about 45 minutes and, and somebody, unbeknownst to him, they must have thought he was moving around too much, so they moved the chair. They just moved it. So he got up, he finished preaching, and when he did, he stepped back and he sat down. And this is what he said, folks, I sincerely believed that that chair was there. I sincerely wanted that chair to be there. But truth is immune to what you believe. Truth is immune to how sincere you are. I, I don't care how, how much you sincerely believe that that wrong key is going to fit the lock. Guess what? It ain't going to fit the lock. I don't care if you sincerely believe that bottle of cyanide is lemonade. You can sincerely believe that with all your heart and you drink and it's going to kill you dead. Truth doesn't care. Truth is just what it is. It's just truth. It's the way things are. And you don't change it just because you sincerely believe in something. Now, why is it so important for you and I to not be relativists, to not be pluralists, to embrace absolute truth? Not, even in, not just 2 plus 2 equals 4 and things like that in our daily life, but in matters of morality and faith, and religion. I said this Sunday, and I'll say it again. It matters because there are always consequences for being wrong. You make a mistake in this life, and you're wrong. There are always consequences. You don't get away with that for free. Now, sometimes they're minor. Sometimes they're major. For example, you take the wrong medication. Best case scenario... You still got your same problem. Nothing, nothing, it didn't help you, right? 
That's the best case scenario. Worst case scenario, it kills you. You get on the wrong plane. You end up in the, in, a, in the wrong city. You go to Napa and you buy the wrong part. They give you the wrong part. You go home, doesn't fit your car. It's not going to work. Now, again, you think, well, those are minor things. Now I've got to go back to Napa. Sure. But there's always costs. There's always consequences. You make the wrong investment. You lose your money. In worst case, you go broke. Marry an unfaithful spouse. Make that mistake. And it can destroy your family. There's always consequences for being wrong in this life. And listen to me. Nowhere are the consequences more severe for being wrong than in matters of faith and religion. Nowhere are the consequences more severe for being wrong than when it comes to faith and religion. Let me read a couple of scriptures. 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 through 12. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. See, there is truth in this life and scripture says if you don't believe it, you will be judged. If you don't believe truth, if you decide you want to go do what your own thing, you will be judged. Now, what is, what is that judgment? Romans 1.18 says it this way. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. You suppress the truth. You hide the truth. You push the truth away and you do what you want to do. You can do that, and the consequences are you will be judged, and, and the Bible calls that the wrath of God, not the displeasure of God. There are always consequences. Listen to me. Eternity is a long time to be wrong. Eternity is a long, long time to be wrong. It is absolutely imperative for our own lives for our families, for our children, that we understand the truth and we get it right. So we started tonight by asking that question, what is the truth? And as we said, that's a great definition. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. And there's a lot of truths in this life. We've got mathematical truths and physical truths. And when I dropped that book, by the way, that book, I could have dropped that book in China. And guess what was going to happen? The same thing. I could have dropped that book a thousand years ago or a thousand years from now. And guess what? It's the same thing. It doesn't matter the circumstances. It doesn't matter the culture. It doesn't matter the country. It doesn't matter the time. That book is going to fall. That's the truth. But what about morality? What about faith? What about spiritual things? How do we determine the truth there? See, the question we need to answer tonight isn't so much just what is truth. The question we need to answer is, is this book true? This is what you and I have to know. Is the Bible true? Now, some of you may... We'll get to that in a minute. It, by the way, if it is true, then it becomes the source of our truth for all spiritual and moral matters. Right. If it's true, you and I should hold on to it like that cat on the end of the rope that you see on the, the Internet sometimes. And we, uh, you hang on to it. You cherish it. You study it. You obey it. You trust it. If it's true, then to, to, if it's true, then you, you dismiss this book. You dismiss God himself. Let me say that again. If this book is true and you dismiss it, then you're dismissing God himself. So what we're going to do is we're going to look tonight and with the time we've got left and then into next week and we're going to decide if this book is true. I believe it is. And by the way, I believe there's proof that this book is true. And that's what I'm going to present to you. Now, you may say to me, well, now, wait a minute, Derek. Why are you just focusing on the Bible? There are other holy books. You've got the Koran. You've got the Hindu sacred writings. You've got the, the Book of Mormon. Why wouldn't you look at those well, you see, I don't have to. Because this book makes statements that if, it's, that if it's true, then all those other books are off the table. Let me give you a couple of examples. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. You hear that? 
If that's true, by the way, uh, C.S. Lewis said anybody that makes that statement is either a liar, a madman, or he's God himself. He's not a good man. You don't make a statement like that and people say you're a good man. He didn't leave that available to us. He's either a flat-out liar, he's crazy as a June bug, or he's God himself. And if that's true, every other book is off the table. John 17, 17, again, the words of Jesus, he said this, Your word is truth. 1 John 2.23 says this, No one who denies the Son has the Father. You hear this all the time. Oh, we all worship the same God. No, we don't. We don't worship the same God. If you deny the Son, you don't know the Father. You can call Him Allah. You can call Him Jehovah. You can call Him whatever you want Him. You don't know Him if you deny His Son. Acts 4.12, there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name given among heaven by which we must be saved. That is a true statement. If that is true, every other book is off the table. Galatians 1.8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. By the way, that's Joseph Smith, the, the, the Book of Mormon delivered to him by the angel Moroni. That takes that off the table if what he says, if this gospel is true. You see, we don't have to look at the false. We look at this one. And if this is true, everything else is gone. See, the Bible makes incredible claims. Just incredible claims. The question is, are they true? How do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? Now, there are two basic ways that you and I can answer this question. I'm going to give you two ways. The first one is this. Some people will say, well, the Bible's true because it says it's true. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to this uh, truth and we don't really need anything else. Okay? Now, let me say this. There is certainly truth to that. That certainly has its place. When I was 11 years old, I, don't, I'm not, I didn't know any of the stuff that I'm going to tell you tonight. And next week. I'm going to tell you some stuff next week that's just going to blow your mind. I didn't know any of that. And some old preacher got up at a camp in Lake Wells, Florida and preached the gospel. And something inside of me said, that's true. Did any of y'all happen to any of y'all like that? You didn't, you didn't have all this evidence. You just something deep inside of you just said, that's true. So certainly there's something about the Bible, I believe, that can just reveal itself to be the Word of God. And people will hear it and believe it with very little evidence. They don't even need it. But you also, there's a second way that we can know the Bible is the Word of God. And that is we can examine the evidence. Now... Is that proper for us to do? Absolutely. Let me read Acts chapter 2, 22 to 27. By the way, this is on the day of Pentecost. They've been in the upper room. Peter comes out after being filled with the Holy Spirit, comes out on the street, preaches a message, and 5,000 people get saved. This is part of that message. He said this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty signs and works and wonders that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. And this Jesus, whom you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. He quotes Psalm 16.10. Do you understand that Jesus could have just come and, and just said, I'm the Son of God, and done no miracles, and fulfilled no prophecy, and just said, hey, if you're going to believe, you're going to believe. But he didn't do that, did he? He came, and uh, the Bible says that the Father attested to who he was, testified to who he was through signs and wonders and miracles. He testified that he was the Son of God by raising him from the dead, and he testified to who he was through fulfilled prophecy. We've got all the evidence we need that Jesus was the Son of God. Well, if that's how New Testament believers reason with unbelievers concerning Christ, I think it's certainly okay for you and I to look at evidence that the Bible is the Word of God. 
And that's what we're going to do for the rest of tonight and into next week. Now, what I want to show you is that this is the Word of God and this Bible is true. Now, the Bible is an ancient document. Now, I'm going to mostly tonight and and next week focus on the New Testament. But the Bible is an ancient document. And as such, it can be tested, whether you know it or not, to determine if it's reliable. In fact, there are three tests that you can test a document with. One test is called the bibliographical test, and I'll explain that here in a minute. Another test is the internal evidence test. And then there is also the external evidence test. Okay? Now, tonight, we're only going to have time for one of those, and that is the bibliographical test. All right? Now, I hope everybody knows that when it comes to the New Testament, we don't have the original letters, right? When Matthew sat down and wrote his gospel, that, that original gospel got lost. And all we have is copies and manuscripts and things like that. So we don't have the originals. So the question becomes, how do we know that what we have today in these books are the same letters, the same gospels that originally uh, were, were put by, you know, pen to paper by the apostles and, and those of that era? How do we know that what we have today accurately reflects what was in the originals? Now, in recent years... There's been a heresy that started to creep into Christianity. And this heresy says that the Bible contains errors. Now, that's a big deal, folks, because if you start telling me that one thing in the Bible is wrong, well, then how am I going to trust anything in the Bible? I need to know that I can trust that book. By the way, I've said it a thousand times. I've staked my eternity on it. I've staked my life on it. I'm, I'm living for this book. Everything is about this book. So I got to know, is it is it true? Is it valid? Is it reliable? Is it is it trustworthy? And, And this is what people say. They'll say something like this. Well, you know, people make mistakes and we all know that's true. Right. Communication is never perfect. So you'll start trying to talk to somebody about the Bible and you'll say, well, the Bible says this. And they'll say, well, yeah, but listen, over the years, the Bible's been passed down and translated and copied so many times. After 2,000 years, it's anybody's guess what the original really was. And by the way, when we hear that, it sounds reasonable. How many of y'all played the the telephone game when you were kids, right? Everybody know the telephone game and, and, and basically person A comes up with a statement and they tell person B. And then B tells C and C tells D right on down the line. And by the time you get to the end person, the message has gotten all messed up, right? And most people think, well, that's how the Bible got passed down. So if somebody says to us, well, you know, people make mistakes, we think, well, you know, that's probably probably right. But the problem is that's not at all how the Bible was passed down. It wasn't passed down from one person telling another person telling another person. There were two big differences. First of all, the transmission wasn't linear, one-to-one-to-one-to-one, like the telephone game. It was geometric. In other words, one letter made five copies. Those five copies became 25 copies. Those 25 copies became 100 copies. And the other thing that makes it different is it wasn't passed down orally. It was passed down through writing. It was all written down. Now, again, somebody may pop up and say, well, yeah, but the Bible, and we hear this, by the way, the, the Mormons say this, Jehovah's Witnesses say this. Well, the Bible's been translated and recopied so many times that we don't really know what the original said. Come over here and read our copy. Read our Book of Mormon. Read our Jehovah's Witness translation. And that statement there introduces one of the most frequent objections to the Bible if you're ever talking to somebody. Well, it's been translated. We just don't really know what it means. I remember years ago on the Larry King show, uh, there was this lady on there. I can't remember her name now, but she was all into New Age and they were interviewing her and somebody called in and basically said, started quoting the New Testament saying that, you know, quoting the Bible saying that was all witchcraft and Jesus was the only way. And, and they just said, oh, well, you know, the Bible, no, but you can't trust the Bible. 
it's been passed down and retranslated. Nobody really knows. And it just kind of shut down the whole, it kind of shut down the whole argument. But I want to show you tonight how we know that this Bible that we have today is exactly what the apostles wrote down. So I'm going to use Aunt Sally's recipe. So let's say we got Aunt, an Aunt Sally. Now, Aunt Sally makes the best cookies you have ever eaten in your life. She just came up with it on her own. Nobody gave her the recipe. She just came up with it. And everybody talks about Aunt Sally's cookies. But she's got the only recipe. And she keeps it in her little, her little recipe book in her, in her kitchen. Well, Aunt Sally eventually has three daughters. And so one day, their, her daughters get old enough and, and they start to have families on their own. So Aunt Sally makes a copy. For, she makes three copies, one for each of her daughters and gives it to them. So now we started out with one, right? Now we got four. Well, those daughters end up having children of their own. Each one of them has three children. And of course, everybody loves Aunt Sally's cookies. She makes them for all the family gatherings and they all want the recipe. So they make copies of that and they give them to all their children. And by the time you get to the fourth generation... There's 37 copies of, these th of this uh, recipe floating around all over the place. P people have moved all over America, all over the world. Of course, Aunt Sally has died and, and gone on. And over the years, things happen, right? People relocate, people die, people move. And a lot of things just get lost. And so eventually, slowly, a bunch of them just end up. The original that Aunt Sally had, nobody can find it. Uh, two of her daughters, they lost their copies. And so when it's all said and done, there's only 11 left. And one of the grand, great-grandchildren gets on Facebook, and, and she's looking at her recipe one day, and she says, I wonder if this recipe is exactly the one that Aunt Sally passed down. So she starts reaching out on Facebook, and she finds people all over the world and says, send me your recipe, and she recovers all 11 surviving copies. And when she looks at them, this is what she finds. Out of the 11, seven of them are exactly the same. Three of them have misspelled words. And somebody had a sweet tooth and changed a quarter cup of honey to a half a cup of honey. Now, I'm going to ask you, do you think out of those 11 copies you can put together Aunt Sally's original? Yes or no? Absolutely. In fact, by the way, 10 out of the 11 are exactly the same. There's just some misspelled words. And what do you think is more likely, that one person changed it from a quarter to a half or that 10 of them changed it from a half to a quarter? Right? So you can very easily... By the way, what I just described to you is a, sign, is a scientific method called textual criticism. And this is where scholars take copies that they find all over the world. And they reconstruct original books or original manuscripts. Now, there's a couple things that are very important when you do this. Number one, how many copies do you have? Do you understand if you only had two copies of her recipe and one of them said a quarter cup of honey and the other said a half a cup, could you ever figure it out? Anybody? No, you'd have no way of knowing. But if you got 100 copies and 93 of them say it's a quarter cup, then you can, that's a good bet it was a quarter cup. So how many copies you have makes a big difference. The more copies you got, the better the comparison will be. The other thing that's important is how close in time is the oldest copy to the original? Is it a year? Is it five years? Is it 10 years? Remember, go back to the Aunt Sally's. Remember, one of the ones that they had was the one that she gave her daughter. That I would put, I'd put a lot of weight on that one, wouldn't you? Because it was very close to the original. So how many copies, how close to the original? Now I'm going to give you some list of books. There's a book uh, uh, was written in a four, 460 to 400 BC called The History of Thucydides. We have eight surviving manuscripts. The oldest manuscript we have is from 900 A.D. Now, by the way, that is a period... 900 A.D. is old, but there's a 1,300-year time gap between the original and the oldest copy. Everybody with me? I'm going somewhere with this, so, so just hang on. Let me give you another one. Aristotle's poems. 
written in 343 B.C. We have five manuscripts. The time gap from the original to the oldest copy is 1,400 years. That's over a millennia. The history of the Gallic Wars, written by Julius Caesar in 58 to 50 B.C., we have ten copies. The oldest copy is from 1,000 A.D. So there's a 1,000-year gap between when he originally wrote it and the oldest copy that we have. And then there's one by Josephus, and I brought this one tonight, called The Jewish War. It was written in the first century A.D. We have nine copies. And the oldest copy we have was uh, from uh, 5th century A.D. So there's 400 years between when he originally wrote it and the oldest copy. Now, by the way, I opened this book and I looked anywhere for them to say somewhere that, hey, we're not sure this book is the original. In fact... Scholars are 100% confident that they have put this book back together exactly the way it was, even though they've only got nine copies and a 400-year gap. Everybody with me? The second best attested work in history is Homer's Iliad. How many of y'all have read the Iliad? We used to have to read it in high school. They made us read it. It was written in 800 B.C. It's actually a poem. It's got 15,693 lines. It is the best, second best preserved work in history. It's got 643 copies. Now, do y'all remember those other books? Eight, nine, five, four. That one's got 643. That's pretty good, right? It's number two. Number one is the New Testament with over 25,000 manuscripts. 25,000. It's not even close. Can you imagine having 25,000 different copies of something? And they use that to put the original back together. For somebody to stand up and say, well, we're not sure. No, we are 100% sure. We are 100% sure. In fact, scholars of any, if they've got any integrity of all, they don't even argue that anymore. F.F. Bruce said this, There is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of evidence as the New Testament. There's no other book like it. Now, the New Testament has about 20,000 lines in it. Out of that 20,000 lines, only 40 lines are disputed. Now, by the way, compare that with the Iliad which is roughly 16,000 lines, it has 743 disputed lines. The Bible only has 40, the New Testament has 40 lines that scholars even argue about. And by the way, those 40 lines represent one quarter of 1% of the entire New Testament. And just to set your mind at ease, those 40 lines do not in any way affect the teaching or the doctrine of the New Testament. In fact, let me show that to you. This is one of the disputed verses. Matthew 17, 21. These are the words of Jesus. It says, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, how many of you have ever noticed in your Bible, sometimes you'll get that little letter with a bracket, and you look down in the note, and it says, N-U text omits this verse. Anybody ever notice that in your Bible? And you think, I have no idea what that means. What that means is the oldest known manuscripts do not contain that verse. That's what, when you see that, that's what it's saying. The oldest manuscripts we have don't contain the verse. But by the way, Mark 9.29 says this. So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. It's the exact same statement by Jesus, and that verse is not disputed at all. I'll give you another example. Matthew 18.11, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Again, you'll see that little notation in your Bible. It says the NU text omits this verse. Once again, it just means that the oldest manuscripts that they have don't have that verse in it. But the exact same verse is found in Luke 19.20. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. That verse is not disputed at all. I'll give you one more. Luke 17.36, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. That verse is not in the oldest manuscripts, but Matthew 24, 40 is. 
then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. That verse is not disputed at all. Now, there are some verses that, are not, that are, don't, have, uh, don't have duplicates. For example, Acts 15.34, Notwithstanding it pleased Silas to abide there still. Acts 28.20, When he had said these words, the Jews departed and had great reasoning. Those are disputed verses. But what you can be absolutely confident in is there's not a single disputed verse that affects the doctrine and the teaching of the New Testament in any way. Now, this is pretty cool. Did you know that if we lost all 25,000 manuscripts, let's just say for some reason tomorrow, all 25,000 manuscripts just went up in dust. If we lost every one of them. We could put the entire New Testament back together with the exception of 11 verses just from the writings of the early church fathers. You see, the early church fathers did exactly what I'm doing here tonight. They would copy verses, they would write books, or they'd write papers, or they would teach or preach, and they'd write verses down. And a lot of that stuff has survived. Just like if a thousand years from now somebody found this PowerPoint, there's probably... 10 or 12 verses in this PowerPoint. Are you with me? Same thing. So we found their letters. We found their books. We found their papers. We found their, their sermons. And those have been saved. And if we lost all the, the manuscripts, all the copies, we could put the whole New Testament back together with the exception of 11 verses. We don't even need them. That's how sure we are. Now, remember I said two things are important when you do... Uh, textual criticism. One, how many copies are there? Well, we got that covered, right? We got more copies than we need, really. We got tons of copies. But we still have to deal with the gap. How long was it before when Jesus died and rose again until the first letter was written? Was it 10 years? Was it 100 years? Was it 300 years? How much time went by? If the gap is so large... What happens when a gap is really large, myth and legend start to creep in. People start to add things that didn't really happen. This was populated, by the way, by a guy by the name of F.C. Bauer. He was a German Bible critic who lived in the 1800s. And back then, he, he had access to all these manuscripts. And the oldest manuscript they had was from around 180 A.D. That was about the oldest manuscript they had. So he looked at that and said, well, that must have been when they wrote it. So there, what he said was there was 150 years from the time Jesus died until they wrote the Gospels. So he said, Matthew couldn't have wrote that Gospel, he'd have been dead. Luke wouldn't have wrote that Gospel, he would have been dead. Nobody, Paul wouldn't have wrote it, he would have been dead. Somebody else wrote it. Somebody just made all that stuff up. It's just myth, it's just legend. The problem, though, is, is people kept looking and searching and finding older manuscripts and older manuscripts and older, and they kept moving the date back and back and back and back. William Albright, in an a, a interview with Christianity Today in 1963, said this, In my opinion, every book of the New Testament was written by a baptized Jew between the 40s and the 80s of the first century. In other words, the entire New Testament was written within 10 to 50 years after the death of Jesus. Not 150 years, 10 to 50 years. Now, some of you are probably like me. I remember the first time I saw that, and I was younger at the time. And I thought, well, you know, that's a long time, right? 10 to 50 years, that seems like a long time, but it's not. Let me give you an example. JFK died November 22nd, 1963. This year is 59 years. So he's been dead 60 years. Let's say I wrote a book, nonfiction, and I wrote a book, and in that book I made some statements. I said that JFK is sinless, that JFK was crucified on a cross, that JFK was resurrected from the dead. 60 years has gone by. Can I get away with that? Why not? Number one, there are witnesses still alive. There's people in this room that saw him get shot. They're still alive. Just go talk to them. He didn't die on a cross. He got, he got shot. Um, he, he wasn't sinless. 
Right? And by the way, if we wanted to, we can go to Washington, D.C., open his tomb and get his body out or what's left of it. It's, it's sitting right there. He's not resurrected. See, you can't in just 60 years, there, there's, there's too many people around. The tomb is still there. It's not enough time for myth and legend to creep in. By the way, that takes centuries to do. And the Gospels and the letters of the New Testament were written down in one generation by eyewitnesses. It's just not enough time. William Albright said this again, a period of 10 to 50 years is too slight to permit any appreciable corruption of the essential content and even the specific wording of the sayings of Jesus. Listen, the bibliographical test tells us, don't you ever, ever, ever let anybody tell you that this has been corrupted. Don't ever. What I, now, listen, whether it's true or not, we still got to talk about. We still got to deal with that. We'll deal with that next week. But don't everybody, any, ever let anybody tell you that what you have in this book is not what the apostles themselves wrote down. We have exactly what they wrote down. And we can be sure of that and we can trust that. Now, again, next week, we got some work to do. We got to get in and look at some some of the evidence outside the Bible and inside the Bible for whether it's true. And that'll we'll do that with the internal evidence test and with the external evidence test. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. What would we do without it? God, we have not been left adrift to to go through life based on our feelings, but we have your very word. And God, you have made sure that this has gotten passed down. Even the scientists have to admit that there's no book like this book. It has come down to us and been kept and guarded by you as the very word of God. Now, Father, I pray that next week you bring us back because we've got some incredible things to talk about. Some, I think, some incredible proofs that not only has this Bible been passed down intact... But this Bible is true, that this Bible is the very word of God. Father, drive that home. Give us each one of us through you. Do what the only the Holy Spirit can do. All I can do is, is talk. All I can do is give evidence. But it's the Holy Spirit that validates it in people's heart. And I just pray that you do that with everyone here. We are in such a, a, a time here, Lord, that we need you. We need to anchor to your word like never before. The whole world is going crazy. But God, we have the truth. We know the reality. We know how things really are. God, help us be strong. Help us be courageous. Help us not to give up this close to the end. And Father, I pray once more, the Holy Spirit, just testify. Testify to these people's hearts that your word is truth. We thank you, we praise you, and we give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, you are dismissed. I'll be... I'll be, I'll be happy to stand up and answer any questions. If anybody's got, um, I'm, I'll hang around for a little bit. But please, uh, if you can, come back next week. We've got some incredible, incredible things to cover. Thank you all. all. Appreciate it. Thank you again for listening to this message from River of Life. If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with, please contact us at 850-926-1200 or email us at info at We also want to encourage you to visit us this Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. in Crawfordville. Please visit us at ROL Crawfordville for more information and directions.